0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind the scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Hi, and welcome to Behind the Knife's critical care session as we tackle renal dysfunction in the surgical ICU. We've got Brittany Bankeld-Kendall, Ryan Dumas, and I'm Caroline Park. Our team is going to discuss the ins and outs and the implications of dialysis therapy in the ICU. So this is the overall topic, renal dysfunction, and uh, we'll cover a couple of uh, reasons why this episode is important and relevant for you all.
2: Thanks for that introduction, Caroline. Um, So really, the goal in the next 25 to 30 minutes is to discuss renal replacement therapy in the ICU. Now, that sounds very daunting, and that's certainly something that the entire um, class can be uh, discussed and, and topic that is really uh, quite expansive, but we're going to talk about venous modalities and CRT. Uh, we're not going to touch on A- IHD, on SCUF, or slow uh, slow efficiency dialysis. Um, we'll, that's kind of beyond the scope of the discussion. Uh, what we are going to do, though, is focus on some literature, uh, specifically two of the newest trials uh, that really look at timing of initiation in dialysis, because that remains uh, probably the most controversial controversial thing in our critical care patients that we take up is when do we pull the trigger and start dialysis. Um, and so uh, with that we're also going to throw in some debates and talk about our different variations in practice uh, between uh, Doctors Park and Dr. And uh, Bank of Kell So uh, let's start off with the case.
3: Yeah. All right. So Let's say there's a 65 year old female and we all know this patient. So she comes in, she's got a pest medical history of hypertension, diabetes. She comes into the ED hypotensive. She's got a leukocytosis on labs and peritonitis on exam. She gets her antibiotics and her blood pressure response to that fluid bolus. And then she's taken to the operating room In the operating room. You find a Hinshey through diverticulitis. She gets her sigmoid resection, her new primary anastomosis and a diverting loop ileostomy. By the end of the case, she's requiring both norepinephrine and vasopressin. She's been oliguric throughout the case in your discussions with anesthesia. You take her back to the ICU. She's still in the ventilator. Her post-op labs show that she's now acidotic. Her white count's unchanged. And now her creatinine has doubled from pre-op. She's only got three cc's of urine in the bag. So how are we going to manage this patient? And should we all be managing this patient the same?
1: Great. So that is a great segue into what the learning objectives will be for this particular session. So priorities are going to be understanding the indications of renal replacement therapy. doctor Ben Benkel-Kendall is going to go over that. Understanding the different modalities of CRT. Dr. Dumas will really dive into that section. And then of course, we want to discuss two uh, seminal articles um, regarding timing of renal replacement therapy in critical ill patients. One is specifically on timing and the second one is going to be on timing, but in patients with septic shock.
3: Awesome. So we'll move into kind of first things first, and that's understanding the indications for dialysis. And this is really something, if you ever do an ICU rotation um, or you are an intensivist, you know, that we talk about it all the time, very frequently um, and really knowing these AEIOUs, we call them of acute kidney injury and indications for dialysis are key. So uh, just to recap, remember A is for acidosis. Um, E is going to be for your electrolyte abnormalities. And usually this is going to be potassium and phosphorus when we're talking about, uh, these acute kidney injury patients. Um, I is going to be for intoxicants or intoxications. We don't see that as much in the ICU and, uh, in the surgical ICU, uh, but it's certainly one to remember, um, O is going to be for overload. So fluid overload, um, and a lot of times And our patients, the first manifestation of this uh, is going to be from a respiratory standpoint. So they'll either develop a new acute respiratory failure, or if they're already on the ventilator, you'll see worsening vent requirements. And then U is for uremia. Um, And you want to think about this both objectively from the number that you're seeing creep up on your lab work every day, um, but then also kind of subjectively and evaluating the patient uh, in front of you and seeing how they tolerate even maybe a lower BUN, um, and, and thinking about in, in your decision for whether or not to do dialysis.
2: So, uh, what modalities are we really talking about here? Um, I think the term CRT is an umbrella term, uh, and really when you dive into the, into the weeds of it a little bit more, there's, there's three main, uh, modalities. And so, um, you know, the, the CRT machine itself can be kind of uh, daunting and certainly uh, really second only to the ventilator can cause a lot of angst amongst trainees. So uh, what I want you guys to remember is uh, CVH, which is uh, hemofiltration, CVHD, which is hemodialysis, and CVHDF, which is hemodiafiltration. And so we're going to talk briefly about the two physics principles on which uh, these rely. So um, hemofiltration uses convection. So convection works on the principle of pressure across the semi permeable membrane that um, accommodates certain size particles or ions and molecules to to cross the membrane. So certain things of certain size will cross. Other bigger things, like albumin, for example, will not. And so the patient is dialyzed uh, like that. And then replacement fluid is used to tweak the concentration of electrolytes in the patient's um, blood that's returning to the patient. Replacement fluid can both be used pre-filter and post-filter. So that's the, phil- the physics principle of convection. Hemodialysis uses and relies on the physics principle of diffusion. So a dialysate, and that's those bags you see hanging down on the, the PrismaFlex machines, is uh, is ran countercurrent to the patient's blood. And so the reason why the dialysate is ran counter countercurrent is because the whole idea is to increase the diffusion gradient, which is the principle that we're uh, relying on to dialyze the patient and that's gonna be through osmosis and diffusion. Uh, molecules are gonna diffuse across areas from high to low concentration. So for example, for a patient with a potassium of eight, you might put them on a zero K bath and that'll dialyze off the potassium very high. So this is what a circuit looks like um, or what it would look like. Um, so really for chemo filtration, we're gonna use a replacement fluid and we're gonna add replacement fluid to increase the osmotic pressure and the machine is going to draw and create a negative pressure across the filter, which is going to help um, dialyze the patient. And then the um, uh, the, di- the nurse is going to dialyze in how much replacement fluid we're going to use, uh, excuse me, dial in, and then we're going to use to uh, to tweak the patient's electrolytes uh, on post-filter. Uh, and then HD is going to use a dialysate. And so the dialysate runs counter current, uh, as I just described. And so that's going to be uh, a pretty st- a straightforward setup, and that's the setup that, for example, people uh, use in in hemodialysis. And then the final configuration can be all uh, both modalities combined. And now, you know, I'm I'm also, I'm always or frequently asked what why we use a certain uh, modality over another, and that, quite frankly, in my experience tends to be institutional dependent. Um, so there's certainly some institutions which which only do hemofiltration. Uh, where where I practice, we do hemodiafiltration. And so that's a combination of both. So we're going to we run a dialysate, a countercurrent, and then we also use uh, a replacement fluid uh, to adjust electrolytes uh, and um, to tweak the transmembrane pressure across the dialysis filter.
3: All right. So today we're really going to be getting into um, the specifics and the details of two really more recent journal articles. But you know, just in thinking about things that. We need to be thinking about in our analysis of whether or not a patient needs to be uh, dialyzed is first of all, what type of modality. And um, you've got your intermittent hemodialysis, your continuous renal replacement therapy. And then, um, like Ryan talked about, your intensity of dialysis and the flow rates that you're using and the patient's ability to tolerate that. And then, really, the thing that um, in the surgical ICU we debate the most is going to be the timing of initiation and whether doing this early for our patients is going to lead to better outcomes, uh, or if we should stave it off, if we should wait. Um, and that's really where a lot of, uh, literature is, is evolved around. Um, there's been a few, uh, in the past, uh, that have come out, but really the ones we're going to talk about today are the ideal ICU trial from 2018. And then really recently the start AKI trial, um, in 2020.
1: That is a great segue. Thank you, Dr. Bankel-Kendall, um, to discuss acute kidney injury and septic shock. I know Dr. Dumas is gonna dive into the population specifically just acute kidney injury. Um, so let's take a closer look at the ideal ICU trial again um, from 2018 from New England Journal of Medicine. Looking at specifically outcomes after early versus late or delayed initiation of dialysis. Now your questions, questions, well, what is early? And early is actually fairly early. It's within 12 hours. And then delayed is within 48 hours. So still within a decent time timeframe. Um, so this trial was really performed because of the conflicting results of the Aileen and um, Akiki trial. Now, before we dive into the meat of the study, I think it's really important to understand the criteria for which these patients meet. And these authors specifically use the RIFLE criteria versus the Kodaigo criteria, which was used in subsequent studies. The RIFLE criteria stands for risk, injury, failure, loss, and institute adrenal disease. And the category that we're most interested in for this study is the failure F. So in the rifle criteria, we look at patients who are either non-oliguric or oliguric. Are they making urine? Are they not making urine? The patients that are not making urine, um, you're looking at creatinine or GFR decreases greater than 75%, a serum creatinine that's tripled um, versus an oliguria looking for urine output of less than 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour for 12 hours, or they've simply been aneuric for 12 hours. So the inclusion criteria for the ideal ICU trial, patients had to be greater than or equal to 18 years of age, needed to be admitted to the ICU within the early phase of septic shock. So within 48 hours after start of vasopressors, plus they needed to have acute kidney injury, meeting at least one of three of the criteria that I just mentioned within the failure stage. So keeping that in mind, let's kind of talk about these patients. So they screened um, almost 3,600 patients included 1,728 and they randomized 488, uh, 219 into early and 149 of them, which went into the delayed group. Now, again, keeping in mind the uh, timing of uh, initiation of therapy. So, you know, in terms of thinking about this study and is this patient, you know, generalizable to my unit, I'd say that these patients were very well uh, matched um, in terms of comorbidities, SOFA score and organ support. The um, outcomes that they were looking at specifically were 90 days and death at um, 180 days. So this is for mortality specifically. Um, And I think the really interesting thing is, is that, you know, there really wasn't a huge difference um, in mortality. The mortality was 58% in the early strategy group and 54% in the delayed strategy group. So really wasn't much of a difference. Um, You know, and the other things that we're going to have to also think about are the secondary outcomes, right? So for patients who did not receive dialysis, what are the possible consequences? So we're looking at, you know, patients who may have a greater length of stay, they're on a LASIK strip. Um, Did they need uh, mechanical ventilation? So they were, they so fluid overloaded that they needed to be intubated for longer. And then um, were they so acidotic, needed more vasosuppressor support. So those are the secondary outcomes that they were interested in looking at as well. Um, And then I would say in terms of adverse events, so for patients who did not, or they received later dialysis, there are a couple of things that I would be concerned about as a clinician. Number one being metabolic acidosis. Um, was there any difference in that in hyperkalemia and fluid overload? And, you know, I think hyperkalemia, there was certainly an increase in that and that was significant. Um, but for the most part, there really wasn't much of a difference. So for limitations, Dr. Bank and Kendall, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, they do, the authors identify uh, themselves that using the rifle classification system here is really their first limitation that really it might not be the best or the most sensitive classification system that could be used. So that in and itself is going to be their first limitation. Um, Also noteworthy and something that I think definitely stuck out to me was their recognition that the difference between early and late renal replacement therapy was really 48 hours, which is really not a long time when you're talking about these really critically ill sick, patients in the ICU who were there sometimes weeks, um, 48 hours isn't really a long time. Uh, And is that really a sufficient amount of time to distinguish a difference between those two groups? And overall, you know, the authors kind of say they felt obligated from an ethical standpoint in this study, particularly to not withhold dialysis any longer than two days at the risk of a patient not receiving dialysis who maybe would have needed it, um, which is fair. So Perhaps now, as we will see in the next uh, article, with two large prospective studies like we're looking at today, um, maybe this will be in the works in the future to make that divide a little bit larger to see if there, you know, really is a difference.
0: Hi, all behind the knife listeners, it's Scott here, and I want to share a quick message from our sponsor of today's show, Amazon Pharmacy. Now, many of us listening to BTK are taking multiple medications or supplements to stay healthy and vital. Chances are that every one of our listeners uses Amazon whether it's for buying handy wipes or even parts for your car. Now, Amazon Pharmacy gives you a great of relief because you have an easier way of taking care of the ordering, the organization, and the delivery of your important medications because they come right to your door. It's super easy, like most things that Amazon does. You can have your doctor send your next prescription to Amazon Pharmacy, and then Amazon Pharmacy sorts out your medications by day and time for your ease in taking them. They also will help you with other pharmacy items like inhalers. You can use your own insurance. Amazon Pharmacy works with most insurance plans nationwide. Amazon Prime members get free two-day delivery and save on prescription medications when paying without insurance. Signing up is really easy, yet it's thorough. They'll ask you about your medical history, any medications, vitamins, supplements you may be taking. They'll even go over things such as allergies. Then Amazon Pharmacy reaches out to the primary care doc to coordinate. Like many of you, I use Amazon all the time, and we're familiar with Amazon. I love how easy it is, how they give you updates. It just has that sense of familiarity. Now you can have that same sense with Amazon Pharmacy. It's one less errand to run, one less line to wait in, and the medications arrive securely and safely at your doorstep. You can even use your flexible savings account or a health savings account, and you can get additional savings amazon pharmacy will even help you shop for the best price on medications they will transfer your existing prescriptions and work with your insurance and prescriber directly now this is for customers who are 18 years or older and they do provide you with 24 7 support to even speak with a pharmacist it's amazon it's easy i use it all the time i live with my 90 plus year old mother-in-law and i'm going to start using amazon pharmacy Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medications when not using insurance with medication as low as $1 a month. Plus, again, like I said before, free two-day delivery. So learn more at Amazon.com slash BTK. That's Amazon.com slash BTK. Now, let Amazon Pharmacy help you dominate the day. Now, back to the show.
2: Let's talk about the START AKI trial. So the backdrop to these trials, in my opinion, or my the way I interpret the literature, is the in two thousand sixteen the Elaine trial came out and the Kiki trial came out, and they were the first of their kind, and they had conflicting results. The Kiki trial said that there was no difference, and the Elaine trial said that there was a difference in mortality with early, early dialysis. They both had problems. The biggest one was the Elaine trial was a single center uh, and small, and, and not probably readily applicable to many uh, different kinds of centers um and there was a- multiple other issues but essentially they had two conflicting results so which prompted the ideal ICU trial and the start AKI trial now the ideal ICU trial as dr parkers mentioned they randomized less than 300 patients in each arm um so still a relatively small trial the start AKI trial is a large patient population mixed bag of patients with acute kidney injury It's a multi-center trial in over almost 170 sites, 168 sites were included. uh, And they randomized, so over a five-year period, uh, they randomized almost 3,000 patients. So there was uh, uh, 1,465 patients in one arm and 1,462 patients in the other arm. So now, as Dr. Bank had just mentioned in in her limitations of the other um, uh, or the um, ideal trial, you know, the timing of initiation is always a critique. And that was certainly some of the critiques of the older trials as well. And still in this this, um, patient, uh, this particular trial, the immediate time to dialysis initiation in the early group was seven and a half hours uh, and was a little over 48, 51 uh, 51 hours in the second group, uh, which was the delayed initiation. Now, as far as the inclusion criteria, that's the first thing you always have to ask about a trial is what does this fit my patient population? it was pretty standard um, as far as uh, inclusion criteria. So it was any patient with AKI admission to the ICU. They defined AKI um, as a creatinine that hadn't declined within 48 hours. Uh, and <clears throat> they defined severe AKI. Uh, so you have to have a severe AKI, excuse me, with at least one uh, of the following. And that was a two-fold increase in creatinine from the baseline. Um, a uh, creatinine, you um, uh, um, the, uh, threshold and as well the urine output uh, of oliguria of less, less than six uh, cc's uh, of, of urine per kg per hour. Now, so, uh, I mean, the graph here, uh, you know, this, I think the survival curves uh, were essentially the same. So there was no difference in 90-day mortality uh, between early and late initiation. And again, you know, this the number is almost identical, 43.9 versus 43.7. And that's, um, that's essentially, mortality at 90 days. There's really no difference versus accelerated versus standard renal replacement therapy. Um, two of the secondary outcomes that the, uh, the, the authors looked at, which I think are interesting. And one in particular, I hadn't really, um, paid attention to as much was that the the dependence on renal replacement therapy though, after 90 days, uh, was higher, was significantly higher in that early accelerated group. Uh, And then that the, um, um, the patients in the accelerated group had a shorter length of stay. Well, that, that also kind of makes sense. Uh, um, the adverse events um, were more common in accelerated arm, uh, and particularly hypertension and hypo- hypophosphatemia, but the serious adverse events uh, were not any significantly different. So,
1: doctor Bank what do you think about the limitations of that particular study?
3: Yeah, so... Again, equipoise is going to be really subjective uh, in any of these studies, um, and also there's going to be a lot of variability um, among all intensivists. But even as we'll talk about, even here among us three, there's it's going to really vary a lot. So, um, getting good equipoise in any of these studies is going to be really difficult. Um, also, for the patients who were excluded, the authors didn't really disclose or report why they were excluded, which I think is important to note. Um, There was more adverse events in the accelerated strategy group, but like the authors pointed out, uh, if you're reporting adverse events in a RRT population and you've got people on RRT longer, it's potentially certainly attributable to that higher number of overall days that they are on RRT. Um, And then, you know, something that I kind of picked out as I was reading really both of these studies is the number of surgical patients uh, that are in these. And I think that's Noteworthy because only one third of these patients of in this study, only one third of them were surgical patients, either scheduled or unscheduled. Um, and as surgical intensivists taking care of mostly, if not entirely, surgical patients, I think that's worth noting because as we know, our patient population isn't entirely the same as a medical ICU is. And so, how much of this study and data is applicable for us today on behind the knife, talking about our specific surgical patient population. And I think that's just something to um, to remember.
1: Those are some really great points. I mean, what do you guys think about, you know, I mean, of course this last year has been, there've been so many challenges and, you know, of course in, in an ideal world where you can just pick and choose who can get dialysis and you have all the nurses and all the equipment in the world to deliver, um, the therapy, you know, how is this going to change sort of your practice, Dr. Dumas?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think, um, as you just alluded to yourself, you, you have to look at the resources that you know, are around you. And I definitively remember, um, it essentially more or less quote unquote, you know, limiting dialysis or delaying dialysis in some patients during COVID where there was literally not enough, you know, renal replacement therapy machines in the hospital, um, because we had so many patients in the COVID ICUs that also had a concomitant renal failure. So, um, that being said, you know I'm fortunate to practice in a um, in a resource rich environment, and I am very aggressive to start dialysis. I think, you know, of all the stuff, all the evidence we have in the critical care literature, you know, volume balance is probably one of the most um, you know strong indicators of mortality. And so, if I can manage a patient's volume better with dialysis, um, then I'm going to try to do that more aggressively. Even though, admittedly, some of the literature we just covered would argue that it does not affect the patient's outcome.
1: Dr. Bank and Kendall, are, are you, uh, are you liberally dosing like a hundred milligrams of Lasix VID for these? If their little kittens <laughs> are going to work?
3: Oh yeah. I, um, I am, I'm, I'm a, uh, quite the opposite of Dr. Dumas. I I'm a stave off dialysis girl through and through. And I think, um, you know, I think that probably started a little bit in fellowship, just like he was saying, I did my fellowship during COVID and we had to stave off dialysis, um, a lot more often than we than we really wanted to, and so I saw these LASIKs challenges work. Um, and uh, certainly not in the population of patients who were worsening clinically. They had to be, you know, kind of peaked at their um, clinical improvement. They had to be on their way to getting better, and kind of all other systems. Uh, but if if really the kidneys were your only hang up, and they were. Plus minus on meeting those AEIOUs, I, I, I wasn't uh, disappointed in how many we could get to turn around and that two to three cc's of urine in the bag became five to seven and 10 to 15. And, you know, they really seemed to pick back up. Um, uh, yeah. So, so that's I, interesting. I, so do you
2: think it's picking back up because the patients are getting better and they're just overcoming their sepsis because you're treating with antibiotics? or is it really the Lasix that's getting better? Because in my interpretation of the Lasix challenge is that essentially there's a meta-analysis with nine studies and essentially it'll tell you that Lasix challenge doesn't improve hospital mortality, doesn't improve the need for dialysis or the number of dialysis days or sessions um, or the patients who have persistent oliguria.
3: Uh, yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, probably they're clinically improving and probably it's just giving us some time and buying us some time. Um, but I, I mean, I just, I, I really feel like I've, I've not been doing this very long, but I am a big believer in this. If you're putting them on dialysis, I really feel like I've seen patients not have that renal recovery, like they said in this paper. Um, and so I, I don't think I'll be changing my practice based on this, um, and starting it earlier because it didn't show a decreased mortality. None of the secondary outcomes showed that doing it earlier was really all that more favorable either. Um, and although quality of life, you know, they led to quality of life, which I think is important. So although that was reported as the same, I don't think that lack of renal recovery in the long term is to be undermined. Um, and I know that personally I'd trade an extra ICU day for my own renal recovery.
2: Yeah, that's day. a great point. Dr. Park, you know, that, that was something honestly that, you know, I've heard about, but I wasn't, I had certainly never seen it in a trial like this. You know, that trial specifically says that, you know, there's an increased need for renal replacement therapy and accelerated arm at 90 days. Does that make you take pause and maybe consider pumping the brakes on the early dialysis?
1: I I think it's really the whole picture, Um, you know, and it really depends on the sort of relationship that you have with the nephrologist, or if, if you're writing for your own CRT, of course you have your own control of when you start dialysis or not. Um, but yes, you know, when I have a patient on dual pressors who's acidotic and um, you know, I just feel like I'm not making much headway i'm I'm going to be much more aggressive with with dialysis. And if there isn't um, a, an increased harm necessarily, we we reviewed some of the adverse events, but none that are like that significant clinically, I might be pushing the envelope and heading towards dialysis.
2: Dr. Banker Kendall, how do you administer your LASIK's challenge? because I think that's something that in my practice is very variable. And to be quite frank, I think sometimes we don't push it maybe hard enough. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So I I mean, my first question is always, is the patient Lasix naive, which is a silly question, but uh, it's really important because sometimes uh, tenolasix goes a whole lot longer of a way than our uh, residents really remember or recall. And if their creatinine is super, super high, then appropriately I will give 60, 80, 100, 120 without blinking an eye because they're going to need it. Um, If they respond, that's great. If they don't respond, um, and I still am not seeing any of those really good AEIOUs with a really hard indication of starting dialysis and feeling like I can really turn the corner in the next 48 hours with them. Um, And they're kind of this subacute, lingering, smoldering renal failure, then I'm going to try Vmex and I'm going to hit them with Vmex and then start them on a drip and see if I can get them to start that way too. Um, yeah, but for those, those like real AEUs, if they are really significant or if I'm really having ventilator problems or they're really acidotic, then for sure, I'm going to, uh, dilate my patients. I don't want that to be
2: misconstrued. (laughs) Dr. Park, how do you, how do you dose your Lasix?
1: I, I actually do approach it the same way, naive or not. And then, um, I don't really look at their BUN and creatinine so much, but, um, if the patient is not least naive, I will tend to just go big. Um, and I will just go for 60, 80, hundred. Um, because I, I, personally, I think that, you know, it either works or doesn't, I, I don't think that least six really hurts. Um, so if, if it works great, then I know that I can continue on this path. If it doesn't, then I know that I may have to consider other things. I, I don't necessarily I feel like if the least six bolus doesn't really work, Bumex probably won't work in my experience, but something um, certainly, certainly worth considering.
2: Yeah, I once had a Mickey intensivist tell me that his rule of thumb was forty times the crack, and I think that's you know not a bad number to hang your hat on, and or an elite naive person one point five times you know uh, their one point five makes per kid. Um, so
1: great. Well, this has been a really great discussion. Obviously, if you asked three intensivists, you might get three different answers on when to initiate dialysis. So I think our take-home points for today, um, you know, early initiation of renal therapy actually may not improve mortality. So be mindful of who your patients are, um, what the indications are, and be able to sort of understand the mortality um, for those two different cohorts. Um, And then watchful waiting. We've kind of already talked about that. What are sort of medical management strategies for these patients? Keeping in mind what you have for resources, right? You may not even have CRT available in your institution. It might be more HD or your nursing ratio may not allow for it. So think about what you have um, and also, you know, what your patients really need before considering, um, you know, place some therapy. I think it's all we got for, for you guys from behind the knife, um, the surgical critical care team. Um, we look forward to um, working with you guys in the future. And I guess we'll just dominate the day.
0: Until next time, dominate the day.